All right, as we head into warmer weather across much of the U.S. in the coming months, one way to stay cool and continue to get a good night's sleep is by checking out Bull and Branch Bedding and Sheets. They're a brand that we love here at Mo News. We only endorse products that we love. And we've been using Bull and Branch for more than two years now in our home. The sheets have been great, soft, breathable fabric that works for both cold and warm weather. We noticed the quality immediately and have gotten a few different sets in our house. I know Jill has as well. They're made with 100% organic cotton, completely free from toxins. I know that is very important to a number of you. And it's not just sheets. They have blankets, duvets, pillows, a whole variety of products to ensure you get a good night's sleep. And right now, they have a great deal for the Mo News community. Go check them out. I promise you will not be disappointed. Again, they get softer with every wash. So the deal right now is 15% off your order when you use the promo code MONEWS over at bullandbranch.com. That is bullandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com, promo code MONEWS for 15% off. Exclusions do apply. See site for details. Hey, everybody. It is Mo Shwinunu. I want to thank you for joining me for this Mo News conversation. I'm currently traveling, and in place of the daily newscast, we're bringing you some new interviews and deep dives over the course of the next couple of weeks. Today's topic is something I hear from many of you very often, our education system and our school system. And as we begin a new school year, we're diving into how to raise kids to be more thoughtful consumers of information and the news, ask the right questions, including about the media they consume. There's no one better on this topic than Julie Bogart. She's the author of the new book, Raising Critical Thinkers, A Parent's Guide to Growing Wise Kids in the Digital Age. I was recently invited onto Julie's podcast, and we actually had a two-part conversation, which I'll link to in the show notes, where she brought me in to discuss uh, my perspective on news uh, and children and getting reliable sources. We actually enjoyed the conversation so much, I told Julie we had to continue it, and so she came on the Mo News podcast. And lo and behold, you probably can guess it, we spoke for so long last week that I have split this into a two-part conversation, and so today begins our two-parter. Julie Bogart is the creator of the award-winning Brave Writer Education Program and the founder of the Brave Learner Home, which supports homeschool parents. She also hosts the Brave Writer podcast that I just mentioned. I know you will enjoy this conversation as we explore what is working and what isn't in the American education system. Julie also talks about her experience homeschooling five kids. Yes, all of her five kids. We talk about the history of schooling going back centuries. And we talk about practical solutions, whether you homeschool, whether you send your kids to public school, private school, and how we can leverage the digital world for good, even though the internet, she says, brings a lot of peril to our education system and Raising Critical Thinkers, the title of her book. Before we get started here, a reminder to subscribe or follow this podcast on whatever app you listen to us on and leave us a review. Every single review makes a difference and helps us grow. Okay, with that said, I bring you part one of my two-part conversation on Raising Critical Thinkers. Hey, Julie. Well, hello, Mosh. Great to be with you. It's so great to have you. I so enjoyed speaking with you on your podcast. Yes. Um, just, I think last month. And so at the end of that conversation, we so enjoyed it that I was like, well, we need to, we need to continue this conversation. How about we do it on my podcast? I know it was one of those conversations that felt like it could have gone on for hours. So I'm thrilled to be back. It was really, really awesome. I love your perspective. I love your style. It's great. So, uh, for those who are unfamiliar, uh, Julie Bogart is prolific She's the founder of the online learning company, Brave Writer, author of several books, including The Brave Learner. She has a, a new book out called Raising Critical Thinkers, um, which 
I found fascinating, even though I don't have kids yet. Um, I thought like no better what no, no better way to start my education as a aspiring parent uh, at some point uh, in in how to raise uh, kids and specifically how to teach them to be critical thinkers without being cynical. Julie, can we say that? Yeah, I think a lot of critical thinking conversation seems to focus on this idea of having right opinions. But critical thinking does so much more than that. It's the strategy for how to get from your house to the supermarket to avoid traffic or an accident. It's the decisions you make, literally the micro moment by moment decisions you make about how you'll spend your time who you'll give attention to, whether or not to raise your voice at someone, whether or not to be polite at a customer service desk. Critical thinking is the key skill set we use to navigate all our relationships, to implement all of the things we've learned in school or all the things we do in our profession. And too often, we just relegate it to this one very narrow category, which is political opinions or mm-hmm. ideas about social uh, social issues. So that that gets me to the where I wanted to start, which is how you define it. If you have to put critical thinking on a bumper sticker, and I know that um, you didn't have a bumper sticker here. I think the, the book is just over 300 pages, but it's a good read. It's a it's a quick <laughs> read, actually. I'll tell folks. If you had to put critical thinking on a bumper sticker, how, how would you define it? So for me, critical thinking starts with self-awareness. It's the capacity to be self-observant while you're thinking. So you can notice when your bias kicks into gear, you can notice how you get triggered by what you're hearing or what you're reading or what you're observing. And then once you're able to take sort of that stock of how you relate to whatever just occurred, now you're capable of also extending that same way of thinking to the other person. So for instance, any bias that I have about whatever you mentioned is a filter through which I'm hearing what you're saying. So once I at least acknowledge that I have that bias, I'm much more capable now of hearing what you're saying and imagining that you too have a filter or a lens through which you look. So for me, critical thinking starts with self-awareness and then expands to include more points of view. One of the things that I I think you address very early on in the book is that we talk about raising um, children to be critical of things outside the home except the teachers and parents are like, but you, you have to trust everything I tell you, but you've yes. got to be really critical about explain that dichotomy. Oh my gosh. I always say that parents are on the parental propaganda program from the time that baby is born. We've gotten to a certain age, you know, some decades into adulthood where we've figured a few things out. We have all this experience. We have regrets. We have the capacity to imagine long range impacts of our decisions. And there isn't a parent on the planet who doesn't want to give their kids a shortcut to all that gained wisdom. And so we start right away thinking, how can I repackage my thinking and give it to my child so that they can avoid all of the pitfalls of growing up that I went through? But what we do in effect when we overdo that, I mean, sometimes it is beneficial to give a tip, to give a pointer, that's what teaching is. But when we overexert that perspective. My way is the only way to think. We are actually training our children to trust authorities more than their own internal sense that they are developing of right and wrong, of how to evaluate, of when to know that they know enough to make a call. Unfortunately, if they only learn to trust you 
and they are used to turning to someone who has the right ideas and they don't know how to get them for themselves. By 16, they pick their peer group because they're tired of you. And this new group of people they hang out with presents themselves as authorities. Uh, they trust TikTok. They'll trust the internet. They'll trust whatever information is packaged or cloaked in an authoritative point of view. And for the extreme cases, it makes you susceptible to cults or disinformation on the internet. So I always say, in a family, we want to welcome dissent. Dissent is the chlorine in the swimming pool. It's what keeps the family's conversations clean free of that sort of algae that grows around, you know, too much similarity. Yeah, you, you were talking about letting kids wallow in complexity. Um, I, I, I think I heard that in a previous interview. And it's, it's interesting because I, it's uncomfortable, right? It's uncomfortable oh, yeah. to be at the dining room table and have the dissenter and then have the parents be like, no, it's, it's okay that, you know, the second child or the middle child, let's call it the middle child, uh, disagrees <laughs> with the rest of us on this. That's okay. Like they're entitled to their perspective. Yeah, it happens all the time. Uh, but I always say to parents, you know, start small. You don't have to start with, you know, gun control. You can start with <laughs> a debate over Nacho Libre. I remember one of the most uh, expansive conversations our family ever had was out on our back deck. We were eating hamburgers and my daughter and her father just got in this huge discussion about whether or not Nacho Libre was a good movie. And of course, my kids really thought it was. And my ex, while he thought it was funny, thought it had plot flaws and characterization development issues. He's a literature professor. And my kids just went to bat to show him how that was not the case. So dissent can look like just healthy conversation where you just don't even agree on entertainment. Try not to always assume everything is going to the level of our political discourse in our culture. But Julie, just, just for the sake of biography here, you have five children. I do. you homeschooled. Um, how old are they now? My oldest is 35 and my youngest is 26. Got it. Um, and so I'm wondering what lessons your own or you take away from your own parenting experience, things you did right and things that you realize in retrospect you did wrong, you apply to, and by the way, I, I, I shouldn't jump the gun here. I'm not here to imply, Julie, that you did anything wrong as a parent. <laughs> oh, oh, it's okay if you imply it. Is there a parent who's not done anything wrong? I'd like to meet them. <laughs> so I'm wondering what lessons you applied from your own personal uh, parenting experience to, to this book. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So one of the mistakes I made very early on that my husband and I made at the time is that we really did think it was our responsibility to protect our children from thinking that we thought was dangerous to them. Now, when we talk about that, that sounds very reasonable as a parenting goal. You don't want your child around, quote, dangerous thinking. But then you start to realize that some of that is just generational. For instance, my son Noah was very interested in heavy metal music, kind of a throwback, really. He was interested in Metallica, Rage Against the Machine, those kinds of musicians. And I was very uncomfortable with them. I remember him playing the song Rape Me by Nirvana, and I just mm. had a true meltdown. Took him to task for it. And he's like, Mom, do you realize he's talking about journalists? And I was like, I did not even know that. <laughs> like, I, I just <laughs> did not even know it. And here I was getting ready to be like the battering ram on his musical preferences because I thought I was protecting him. 
Uh, and so we went through a period where we were very restrictive and punitive around music. I wrote about that in my first book, The Brave Learner. And fortunately, Noah has always had this loyalty, this fidelity to his true self, even more than to his parents. And I consider that a gift now. When he was little, it was kind of a pain. But what I discovered by being his mother is how important it was for him not to always agree with us and also to have the freedom to explore what was interesting to him with a you know, secure, safe audience. If I became the antagonist, we lost our relationship. So that was one of the early lessons I learned is my kids are going to have preferences, tastes, curiosities that aren't comfortable for me. I can either choose to go on that journey with them, or I can eliminate my voice as a part of the conversation. And I ended up choosing, I want to be a part of it. I don't want to be eliminated. Which is very difficult, right? To, very. To know, that, to know that there are shortcuts sometimes, um, and they're taking the scenic route. Well, in fact, so I have a couple of other examples from other kids. So I remember one of my sons got really interested in politics. Today, he's a human rights lawyer and works for the UN in Central Africa. So just to show you sort of the long tail of where his interests were. So he was very interested in social issues from a young age, started the Amnesty International chapter at his high school. He was that kind of kid. So there was a social issue on the ballot. I won't tell you which one it was, but he had a very strong opinion about it. And so he gathered all this research and almost did a PowerPoint presentation with me. Mom, here's what you need to understand about this issue. And I was like really curious. I had learned my lesson, support him, be curious, you know, praise him for his great research. And at the end, he said, so are you voting pro? And I said, well, actually, I'm still voting calm. And then he just declared with so much anger. He's like, mom, I count on you to be logical. <laughs> he had not persuaded me, and he was quite upset about it. And I said, you know, Jake, I have a whole set of data and information that informs my perspective. And in our conversation, you didn't ask me for it, which is fine. But what you did didn't account for it either. So yes, I think your perspective is logical. I get why you vote, would vote that way, and someday you'll get to vote that way. But for me, I'm still over here. But we can have this conversation. And that's kind of what I tried to do as I got better at parenting, was create room for myself. I wasn't trying to pretend I was a different person, but I also wasn't there to discount his presentation. Like, I didn't mm -hmm. interject all the time with my perspective. I let him make his case. So the book delves into raising a critical thinker in the home and raising a critical thinker through education, through school. Yes. And we're, we're talking here, Julie, as a new school year begins or has begun in many places, is about yes. to begin in other places. Um, and we got numbers uh, in late August, early September, in regards to the impact of COVID on test scores. They tested... Mm. Um, it's the national test they conduct every year among fourth graders, mainly fourth graders. They're all nine years old. Um, and the reading levels and math levels have collapsed to the levels that we haven't seen since the 90s after decades of progress. And just wanted to get your reaction to, to those headlines coming out of the pandemic as, for the most part, I think nationally, uh, kids are now back in school. Um, but... Um, or, I mean, in, if, if they go to school or whether they're... Right, or homeschooled, homeschooled obviously, right. 
or, or homeschooled, whether they didn't change, but just your reaction to the impact of the pandemic and the, and the, the lessons learned so far, kind of two and a half years in. Yeah. So the way that I understand this kind of data might be a little different than a traditional educator, but I try to look at it sort of as a sociologist might. Everyone is in this predicament. So if we talk about behind, uh, let's start with that language. You didn't use it, but this is the language that comes to me all the time. My child's behind. I always want to remind us that behind or ahead is arbitrary. Every child is on their own learning skills journey. So you might have a six-year-old who reads and another child who doesn't read till they're nine. And it doesn't mean either one was ahead or behind. It just means that the consolidation of what it takes to read happened at a different moment in time for each child. So right now what we have is a whole class of students who have suffered a similar fate. They've had a huge disruption in their educations at the same time across the globe. So before we start to panic that, oh my gosh, we've lost so much, it might be helpful to just realize we're all going to solve this problem together at the same rate. Your child is not unique. You're not over here by yourself trying to rescue one child while the sea of humanity has moved on. Everybody is going to be grappling with these losses. The second thing that I will say is that sometimes these measurement tools that we use are also a little bit artificial. They do a good job of scaring up headlines, but kids can make up ground very quickly because of maturity. So whereas two years of maybe instruction is missing, those kids are now two years older. And two years older of brain development makes it possible to acquire the skills more easily than two years ago. Uh, in homeschooling, we have this understanding based on data that you could literally just have your kids play and read books with you and talk and make cookies and ordinary life till about sixth grade. And then everything they learned in K through fifth could be taught in a year. And the reason is brain development. If they have a rich family life, you're reading books, you're having good conversations, uh, you're not neglecting or ignoring your child, the brain development at age 11 and 12 is prepared for math at a level that they aren't at age five. In fact, there are huge recommendations now coming out of Finland, they do their education very differently, and out of the United States now, that delaying the paper and pencil version of math until kids are about 10 actually makes them better math students later. So Interesting. part of what I, I see it, here it, is- Especially as we live in a world now where, you know, it's like, I got to teach my kid Mandarin at age three. Oh, well, and so that's partly what I was going to say. I'm not as afraid of that data as maybe a school parent has been trained to be. Because mm -hmm. what I've noticed from working with families of all different backgrounds with all different learning dis uh, disabilities and issues is that the homeschool environment, a dedicated parent- can really tailor the education to the child. And that's true of parents after school as well. We are not victims of the school system. We are parents. We are still their primary educators and we can work with whatever they get at school and actually enrich and enhance that learning. I've been fascinated by where the conversation around education has gone the past couple of years. I hear from a lot of teachers who feel, um, you know, criticized and, and victimized by uh, parents who say that, no, it, it's not my kid's fault. It's, it's your fault. Ugh. Administrators, uh, government officials who are now imposing uh, restrictions on them 
You know, they feel unappreciated. They feel underpaid because they are, if you look at their salaries versus Truly. the rest of, um, you know, college educated salaries in this country. There was a compelling chart in the Washington Post recently Oof. on that. And just, you know, where, where are we right now? Um, and and how do we ensure, this is something I talked to you beforehand, like that what are the things we can do as parents, especially, um, to ensure that we're not losing a generation of great teachers um, who feel completely burnt out and unappreciated? Oh my gosh. I mean, one of the things about home education is that it is a movement that serves as a critique of modern public education. And so, yes, I have had a lot of conversations over the years about what can be done in the school system. Part of the problem with the school system is that it was developed in the late 1800s, early 1900s to supply qualified workers to our factories, to the nascent industrial revolution. So the real goal of education was reading, writing, and arithmetic. It, it really wasn't, let's cover the history of humankind. It was getting people to a competency level that they could operate heavy machinery, they could be instructed by their you know, governing um, uh, bosses, that they could fill out paperwork, that kind of thing. But the world has evolved a lot in the last 200 years, and we are not actually preparing students to be kind of the innovative, critically thinking, creative minds that they need for this technological revolution, which relies on a whole evolved skill set. I'm not saying that we haven't achieved it, because look at our world. Obviously, there are people who are innovating and doing those things. But what I think has happened is the format of school is still very factory-like. It doesn't have the sort of exploration and freedom associated with becoming an innovator. Back when I was raised, I grew up in Southern California in the 1970s. Um, my school was literally in Malibu Canyon. So like very much the Southern California vibe. My teachers were ex-Peace Corps volunteers, the first generation. And there was a lot of freedom for creativity and I had quite a rich public education. I had a science teacher who took us to a creek every day for three weeks, and all we did was identify the flora, the fauna, and the wildlife and the bugs, and then drew this huge map, and we would sit alone in our own little location, and then we would itemize and name everything in the environment. So much better than a worksheet about bugs, right? I was like around mm -hmm. the bugs. I feel like that's what's missing. We've lost touch with what this education is for, and we are spending way too much time with paper and pencil, just doing these rote tasks. It's not to say that teachers aren't innovators. On the contrary, teachers would love to do that immersive, rich learning. That's why they sign up, and instead they've become pencil pushers and data collectors and worksheet monitors, and that is just burnout level tedious very quickly. And and a lot of this come from, you know, state and local and federal education requirements, officials, testing requirements. I mean, one of the reasons we have those test results I just mentioned is because those tests are conducted. And it, it has been interesting to see some signs, uh, at least at the higher education level, of no longer requiring SATs um, to ensure that, you know, you're getting a full spectrum of talented college students coming your way, even if they don't test well on specific tests, right? Well, and in fact, Paulo Freire, he's someone I cite in my book. He's an education reformer from Latin America. And he would even take that further and say that most testing 
has so much bias built into it, it marginalizes whole groups of people. And they discovered this with the SAT and ACT decades ago that students who are coming from inner city or coming from a place like Louisiana where they grew up speaking Creole or from a Hasidic Jewish community, that they are actually not who the test is designed for. So they're, they're designed for white Protestants, basically, you know, kids who grew up in middle class. And so what we end up with is a very erroneous reading of aptitude, because what those tests do is they test what school system you were raised in. That's what they're testing. And unfortunately, we have a tax structure in our culture that says school funding is tied to where you live. I think this is the least moral law on the land that nobody questions. And that is that property taxes decide whether or not your school has quality education. It's terrible. Where did, where did that come from, by the way? Did, I mean, I imagine you've, you've researched this. What, who came up with the property tax concept? So this was a way to handle desegregation. This is a way that we ensure that my community, where I have money, the, the money I have stays with my white children. That's what it is. If we do a federal mandate like they do in France, for example, where it's all comes into the middle and then is distributed evenly throughout the country, uh, that would mean that my fancy school, where my kids actually went to high school, a couple of them, uh, would not have the resources it has. It would not have the football team it has. It would not have the field that they play on. Meanwhile, inner city Cincinnati public, where my kid's dad teaches, does not have those resources. When COVID occurred, his high school, only 25% of the high school students even had Wi-Fi at home. Mm. Think about that. That's like growing up in a developing nation, but it's in the same city as all the kids in my neighborhood. And that is so unfair, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. And we're talking um, as we're continuing to watch the story unfold in Mississippi, where the city of Jackson, Mississippi, a capital of a, a state in the United States of America, the richest country in the world, doesn't have water right now. I, I just saw that story last week. I was like, is this for real? It made Flint, Michigan look like child's play. It's insane. Yeah. And so we, we really do live in, you know, two Americas sometimes. Uh, but I want to get back to the book here because, yeah. and, and you and you sort of a, a addressed it here as we started to talk about the school system and the structure. You talk about how kids come into the world with curiosity. And then there's a there's a squelching of curiosity, a squelching of diversity of thought, diversity of thinking, um, and and how that came to be. Explain that concept. The and and at what age, in what grade does the curiosity shut down as far as your research is concerned? Yes, they've done studies and they say, you know, most kids under five, so imaginative, right? They pick up a rock and it's a plate. They, they you know, they pretend to make a phone call and they're holding a banana, right? Like they're they're just so free to kind of correlate and experience and test and see if this little block fits through that round hole. So that's natural to children. And by third grade, their imaginations, if they've been in school, have shrunk like by 50%. And by sixth grade, they're all but extinguished. And the thinking behind that, the way that that gets explained, is that they are being trained every day in school to actually submit to the authority's perspective on any given topic. So Paolo Freire, who I mentioned before, wrote Pedagogy of the Oppressed. One of the things he says is that we talk about school through what he calls the banking concept of education. 
It's this notion that children come in with open minds and the teacher has a body of content that is meant to be put inside the brain and then the child will now have knowledge. And what Paolo points out is that children come to school with full minds. Nobody comes open. They come with imagination. They come with their socioeconomic situation. They come with their religious or non-religious beliefs. They come with their cultural heritage. They come with their experiences, whether traumatic or nurturing. And then when you start giving them information, that information is actually interacting with and engaging with that full spectrum of experiences and ideas and understandings. And so what we end up with in school then is children being taught, oh, all those interactions that are happening naturally for you, set those aside and adopt this single answer that applies to all 32 kids in the schoolroom. So, you know, if you take a multiple choice test, there's one right answer per sentence or per question. There isn't five. And yet, might there not be more answers than that single one? And if you have an understanding of the question and you can even justify your answer as potentially correct, teachers don't make those exceptions. They're like, yeah, but the better answer is the one that applies to everyone. So that's how we lose but, our imaginations. But I guess my question is, at the end of the day, there are nouns, there are verbs. Two True. plus two is four. There are some basic facts, like we live in the United States of America. This is the year we were founded, et cetera. So how do you, how do you, live, how do you download information <laughs> on kids, but also not squelch this curiosity that you're talking about? How, how do both? Because at the end of the day, you do have to download information on kids, right? You no, do have to teach them various that's things, right. right? But, but, wouldn't it, yeah. but there are so many ways to arrive at two plus two is four. Is the only one the shape of a two and the shape of a two and a plus sign and an equal sign and the shape of a four? I, I did this with my daughter, in fact. I, I was miserable at math my entire my entire academic life. I had tutors from the time I was in sixth grade all the way through high school. I barely passed my class at UCLA because of a fundamental mistake very early on in math for me. When I was being taught multiplication, I did not ever understand that it was a shortcut for addition. I thought it was a complicated memorization scheme and I was not good at memorizing numbers. So I was trying to find tricks for memory without actually grasping what the math was doing. So when I did zero times one, or one, let's do zero times two or two times one, I thought two times one was one and zero times two was two. I got those backwards. So when I took that first test where I thought that I got them all right, and I even won an eraser because I was a quick handwriter and I got them done faster than anyone in the class, the teacher said to me, Julie, you have to return the eraser because you got them all wrong. She said that in front of the class and did not explain what I did wrong. And from that day on, I felt lost in math because I'd never done it with manipulatives. I never understood what it was. So I was teaching my kids, relearning. I remember the day that when I was like 33 and I'm like, oh, multiplication means multiples. And I'm literally a word person. And it took me till my mm -hmm. 30s to grasp it. So I said to my daughter, okay, we're going to do the times tables, but let's use like seashells. And I want you to represent all of the times tables using seashells. I'm going to go change a diaper. I'll be right back. And when I got back, she had artfully created a two, an X, another two equals, and a four. 
totally missing the point of this lesson completely that mm -hmm. I wanted regrouping. So what we started doing then is I started using these manipulatives and then we started looking for natural places that two times three exists or two times two exists because what we're really doing is creating a mathematical imagination. So when we talk about imagination, the right answers should be the fruit of an active imagination. When you say, when was the United States founded? That's actually not a clear answer. There isn't one date. There are many dates, and those dates have meanings. Sure, sure. And they're it's tied a to example. a bunch there's of the Declaration of Independence. There's the there's the victory over the British and set in. But there's also uh, there's also even prehistory, right? So are we talking about America as it is today, the United States? Right. Are we talking about? But that's my point. See, so when we go with this word fact. A lot of times we all think we know what we're talking about, but what we're really talking about is a story that tells us that that's a fact. And it's not to say that the, the, the information isn't factual, it's that right. it is a fact that lives in a story. I actually, I mean, I literally did a podcast about this <laughs> two months ago, so I should correct myself here for those who have listened, because John Adams never recognized July 4th, um, 1776, because it was July 2nd that the day they voted for independence, but the declaration, the written version wasn't ready yet. So they finally signed it on July. It's dated July 4th. So John Adams for the rest of his life, he would live 50 more years after 1776, um, hated and would never celebrate July 4th because July 2nd to him, he wrote this in letters to Abigail, was the actual day of American independence. I mean, right? And you see this with religion, right? Like Christmas yeah. as a date. We have some people who will not celebrate that date because the bottom line is this, a fact according to who? I'm not saying there isn't factual information. There is. If we do right. data collection, but even the measurement tools, like the measurement tools we use for the weather, Fahrenheit versus Celsius, can be converted, but Celsius is not as precise because it doesn't have as many um, digits available in whole numbers, right? Mm -hmm. So even that, we, we're experiencing the same weather. We're measuring it with two different systems, tells us two slightly different stories. If that was the way we taught, our kids would grow up with these flexible minds that would naturally ask questions all the time. Well, what tool are we using? What is the goal of this data collection? But instead, the goal seems to be being right more than being knowledgeable. And that's really my beef with testing. Got it. Would you get pushback from teachers who are like, listen, this all sounds great, Julie, but I have a class of 25 kids. Um, and I would love to be able to have them all play with seashells, et cetera. But I have 25 kids. I have federal requirements. I have state requirements. Uh, I have various, uh, you know, I have 25 sets of parents uh, right. who are, you know, calling me and asking questions and et cetera. So is, is, how is this sort of thing possible in the kind of education system that we have where you have classrooms of 20 or 30 kids who all, yes, bring different experiences? Yeah, right. I homeschooled. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I, right. I mean, yeah. I, I was like, yeah, that looks hard to me. I will say this. Um, the teachers that I talk to, the ones who have that heart, they do find ways to generate at least conversation. Like the baseline mm -hmm. is the orientation of the adult. So if the orientation of the adult is not just about right answers, but about 
expanded thinking or imaginative thinking, they can foster a lot of it just through the dialogue. Um, my son Noah took an Algebra two class at our local high school. And when I went in for the parent-teacher conference, I was worried about him because he was, he was good at math and yet he was getting a C and I couldn't figure out why. And she said, oh no, he's great at math. He just doesn't turn in his homework. Okay, so homeschool flaw right there, right? He, he just was sort of this kid who was like, what's the point of homework? And I you know, had trained him that way. But here's what she told me. She said that each day she started her class by putting a problem on the board with no solution. And then she would invite the students to, to give her ideas of how you might approach this problem. And she said almost to a student at the beginning of the year, they pick up a pen, pencil and a sheet of paper and they're waiting for the teacher to tell them. But Noah, having been raised at home with this different environment, would raise his hand every day and just take a wild stab at it. And she said to me, sometimes his solutions were so off the wall that she had to really think about, now how did he get that idea? And sometimes they were really on the mark or even an innovative approach. And she said, Julie, your son has mathematical thinking. And that's my goal. That's why I'm doing this with the students every day at the start of class. And by the end of the year, obviously, more students started taking that risk to attempt to solve a problem they had never gotten a practice for. And that's what's missing. It's that sort of interrogative approach to teaching as opposed to just lecture, answer, result, right? And you can do that in any classroom, even with federal restrictions. I want to get at the um, one of the examples you use early in the book, it, the Oreo experiment oh, with four-year-olds to get into like what is teachable versus what is innate here. So there's the uh, experiment where you put a four-year-old in a room with an Oreo and you say that if they wait for 15 minutes and don't eat that Oreo, they'll get two. And about half managed to wait. And years later, they test these kids and find out that the ones who had the ability to wait for the two Oreos uh, had higher test scores, et cetera. Um, correct me if I'm explaining this wrong at all, but I, it, it got me to the question of like, so they're four years old. <laughs> There's only so much you could have taught them at that point. Right. How much of this in terms of critical thinking and the way to think about things is um, innate in terms of how the kids came out versus can, can be taught? Gosh, I love that question. Here's something interesting I've learned since the publishing of my own book, uh, and I wish I had known this information earlier, uh, but there is some critique and pushback of that study because originally the first group of kids were children of Stanford professors. So there was some idea that these kids were not food insecure. They weren't housing insecure. They had, mm. they had the capacity, right, to imagine delayed gratification because their lives facilitated that. That's right. And they were saying for people who are food insecure, taking the cookie when it's offered, when you've experienced not having, would have been the smarter strategy because you never know what's coming later. So there's been some critiques. So I just wanted to throw that out because literally just learned that in the last week. But I no, will that's say- that's helpful. Yeah. Yes. But I will say this. I think what, what the goal of that study was, or what Daniel Kahneman says anyway in his great book, Thinking Fast and Slow, is that there is benefit- for kids, for adults, to go slower in their thinking, to allow for more or additional information to come. And so for young children who are having that predisposition, whether it's nature or nurture, they will actually benefit from having that disposition in their educations. Can it be taught? 
I don't know. I am with you on this. I don't have the training in the biological sciences to speak definitively, but I do have five very different from each other children. And one thing that I did notice is that the kids in my family who were capable of not only delaying gratification, but managing their executive function, their ability to fit into um, you know, deadlines and due dates and all that, had an easier time in life because that's the way the world is set up. And my kids who didn't have that needed more support and accommodations and understanding. So if you're listening to me and you're like, oh no, I have a kid who can't delay gratification, you just need to give them more support. It's not a character defect. In many cases, it really can be an executive function um, issue. And that's something that you can't really overcome, but you can accommodate. This was such a fascinating conversation. I wanna thank Julie Bogart for joining me. This was just part one of a two-part conversation. Stay tuned for part two where we dive into the internet and its impact. It actually inspired her to write this book, including all the problems that she sees on the internet, even though it offers so much promise. We talk about solutions. We also talk about what's going on on college campuses uh, and how that continues to imperil this idea of raising critical thinkers. A reminder, you can get that book, her book, Raising Critical Thinkers, wherever you buy your books. You can also follow her on Instagram at Julie Brave Writer and follow her podcast, The Brave Writer Podcast. I want your feedback on this podcast. Please email me your thoughts, podcast at mo.news. Subscribe to the Mo News newsletter for regular updates on what's happening over at monews.bulletin.com and follow me on Instagram at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H. And before we go, don't forget to follow or subscribe to the show on whatever podcast app you listen to us on and review us in the app store. Every review makes a difference. I'll see everyone back here for part two.